Hello, my name is Katherine Moore, social worker, mom, coffee lover, and founder of Social Workers Rise, where we inspire social workers to connect, expand their knowledge, and change more lives than they ever thought possible. I'm so excited you found my podcast. We will talk everything social work on every level from micro to macro. We will hear the stories of social workers who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. Welcome to another episode of Social Workers Rise. It is your host, Katherine Moore here. This week, we're talking with Daishika Bibbs, who is a LCSW and also a national trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapist. She has over 11 and a half years of experience working with children, teens, adults, couples, and military families. And this week, we're really focusing the conversation on working with trauma in children. And specifically, how do we take care of ourselves when we're working with people who have experienced trauma. Before we even start this conversation, I feel like it's important that we first explore a little bit about what exactly are we talking about when we're referring to trauma. So the most comprehensive study was the ACE study, A-C-E, Adverse Childhood Experiences. And these are potentially traumatic events that occur in childhood from 0 to 17 years old. For example, we're talking about events where the child is experiencing violence, abuse, or neglect. They're witnessing this either in their home or their community. They may have a family member who has attempted or died by suicide. This also includes parts of the child's environment that can make them feel unsafe or really affect their stability or bonding with the parent, such as substance abuse problems, mental health problems, or instability due to parental separation of like a divorce or household members being in jail or prison. So ACEs are actually linked to chronic health problems, mental illness, and substance use problems in adulthood. And it can also negatively impact education, job opportunities, and earning potential. So these are really, really instrumental in our foundation and how we're raised and also too how we live out in adulthood. So I did some further digging and I wanted to know how common is this? It turns out it is pretty common. About 61% of adults surveyed across the United States reported that they have experienced at least one type of ACE. And one in six of those people reported that they had experienced four or more. However, here's the kicker part and why it is so applicable to us as social workers is that there was a study done that social workers are significantly more likely than the average person 
to report at least one ACE or adverse childhood experience. So 61% of the general population, and this study found that 79% of students actually reported at least, of social work students, reported at least one ACE, while 42% reported four or more, and almost one-fourth reporting six or more ACEs in their childhood. So this is really significant because people in our field have, a lot of us have these experiences that, that were harmful or possibly traumatic, right? And it made us who we are, for better or worse. And a lot of us are motivated by some of these experiences to go into the field of social work. And that's actually in the study too. I put all these, res- all these uh, links and sites in the show notes for you if you're learning, if you want to learn more. But it's really significant because when we have a population of social workers or any mental health professional really who has experienced a high amount of ACEs in their, in their life, it really places us at an increased need to process our own experiences through therapy or through clinical supervision or both really just to ensure our own mental wellness and to reduce any kind of interference that we may have when encountering people in similar situations that we experienced because we don't want counter transference to become a problem in our work or even harmful for our clients. So that is a little bit of background about what specifically we're talking about when we're talking about trauma, um, a little bit of the prevalence and why it is so important as social workers that we are talking about this and acknowledging this high rate of ACEs that we have within our industry, that it can really be, it can really be our strength, but we need to first acknowledge it, be aware and actively work to just to process, you know, our own experiences so that we can fully show up for our clients. So with that, let's hop into this episode. This episode is proudly brought to you by the RISE Directory, a national directory of clinical supervisors who are dedicated to helping the next generation of clinical social workers grow in their clinical skills. The link is in the show notes. Check it out and tell every clinical supervisor you know about this directory. Hi, Daishika. Welcome to the Social Workers Rise podcast. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm great. I'm really excited to to talk with you today. Um, So I know that you are a licensed clinical therapist and also a fellow podcast host. Um, You have the Elevated Voices podcast, but... um, And you're also um, a specialist in trauma. Is that right? Uh, Yes, I am um, a licensed, um, a national trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapist. Nice, nice. Uh, People always want to know, how did you get to this? Tell us a little bit about your career background. Yes, I am licensed as a national trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapist. 
I have over 11 and a half years of experience as being a therapist, and I'm so happy about that. So my background is um, I have a master's in social work, and I actually um, got licensed as a licensed clinical social worker. And one of the things that is actually a passion of mine is learning more about trauma, And that basically stemmed from the experiences that I had in my earlier childhood. So I did take several different classes and also trainings that specifically focused on working with individuals with different types of trauma. Okay, that's awesome. That's, that's really interesting. Um, So I know that you also have your own private practice as well. And you shared a little bit with me about, you know, how you came to to be inspired to start your own private practice. Can you share that with us now? Oh, yeah, sure. So um, growing up as a inner city kid, one of the things that I actually various things that I witnessed was prostitution, gang activity, substance abuse and a lot of violence. So when I was nine years old, I had this crazy idea that comes that came to my mind. And I kept telling myself that it must be more to life than what I am experiencing and living in my childhood. Hmm. Like it must be something more to life than that. And so at the age of nine, I was thinking to myself and I said, no one is helping these individuals. They're in pain. And at the age of nine, literally, I was like processing this in my head saying they need help. Mm -hmm. You know, they need help. No one is helping them. So I decided that I wanted to do that. And I declared (laughs) that when I grow up, I'm going to be a therapist because I want to help. That's amazing. I admire your clarity and wisdom at such a young age, because a lot of times people would just, you know, say, gosh, I don't know, people say terrible things about other people. But (laughs) as a child, you know, you had that insight to say, you know, this is wrong. And there has to be help available. There has to be more to life. It can't just be drugs and prostitution and, um, and hurt, you know, and trauma. And that's how we get into those, how we break those generational cycles of trauma. So I really love, you know, that story. And I love that you are in the private practice space. Um, I want to kind of dig into trauma and you mentioned different types of trauma Um, so, and then there's, you know, vicarious trauma. And then I know that we had a question come in on Instagram about, you know, what, what types of therapy would you use for, um, for children and people who have experienced trauma? So, um, let's start there. What are, what are some different types of trauma? So when you look at the word trauma, it is divided into various categories, So you have different events that you experience 
for example, someone who can, someone can experience sexual um, assault that can lead up to a trauma, um, verbal or physical abuse that can also lead up to a trauma, experiencing a natural disaster or war. Those are all what I consider like subcomponents of what trauma can um, look like. So when you are looking at the overall category of how do you categorize trauma, there are a few different ways that we can do that. So you have post-traumatic stress disorder, which we all know is PTSD, and you have acute and you have um, excuse me, you have acute, you have chronic, and you have unspecified. But what people sometimes don't know is that adjustment disorder can also be tacked on and be added under that trauma family because you are trying to adjust to that traumatic event that took place in your life. Okay, that makes sense. There's... <laughs> so much I can unpack there. I can see why you specialize in it. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering, you know, as clinicians, <clears throat> we hear, we hear about the different types of trauma and we hear about these traumas every single day, multiple times a day. Um, what about vicarious trauma? What, what is that? And, you know, what does that look like? Oh, vicarious trauma, that's a biggie. And we as social workers, as clinicians, we actually don't hear a lot about that. So vicarious trauma is also referred to, or some people may know it as secondary trauma, but basically it is an element of exposure that clinicians experience by working with trauma survivors through hearing their stories and then also by observing their physical and their emotional distress when they display that in <clears throat> when they display that in session so in return after a clinician process and absorb all of that information the clinicians themselves can relive that trauma and they can start presenting similar symptoms like the traumatic, like the trauma survivor themselves. Mm. That's pretty, it's pretty wild, pretty interesting. Um, so basically what I'm hearing is when you hear the stories of your clients, you can become traumatized in a sense of by hearing those stories and then you could take on some of the symptoms that they're um that they're feeling or 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 are or are the symptoms your own because I'm kind of thinking if you're if you're absorbing the story maybe you might have nightmares or anxiety or you might be more worried about it happening to you or you might get flashbacks into what you think or the images that that kind of come to mind um would it mimic the ones that your client has or do you take that on as your own trauma so it can 
transform into two levels. So yes, you can um, exhibit or display the symptoms that your client is experiencing. So you hit it on nail, like anxiety, um, grief, or like a lasting sadness from mm. what, it, what the trauma survivor experienced. So if you yourself, you know, cause we are all human. If you yourself have experienced a trauma that you didn't even know or you didn't consider yourself as oh this is a trauma event that can trigger something in you and what you thought that you either process or dealt with in the past or something that you didn't deal with in the past when that surface you know is opening up a can of worms so yes you know you can yourself begin to exhibit your own symptoms and it can be you know divided into emotional behavioral psychological cognitive and even spiritual symptoms Mm, that is so interesting I'm wondering I'm wondering is there a way to prevent this from happening you want to be as a clinician again we are all human And we are all susceptible to to various things. And one of the things that I preach when I am actually supervising up and coming social workers is you want to be able to make sure that you are taking care of yourself. And what that looks like is making sure that you have a great work personal life balance. So that's one step. The second step is before you even get started with doing trauma work, do a self inventory of yourself and just go down the list and ask yourself various questions in regards to who you are. If you yourself have experienced any traumas in your life and just thinking about the gamut of your life experiences in adversities and did you really cope with those adversities or did you like sweep it under the rug or suppress them and if that is the case you know working through your own stuff because we all have stuff Mm -hmm. and the third thing that I will say is just being very mindful of counter transference and so what I mean by that is when you're working in this environment with trauma survivors, if you feel yourself, you know, taking on too much of that emotion and you go home at night and you can't sleep and your mind is continuing to race, then, you know, again, making sure that you have good self-care practices in place, being able to decompress after each session, if you can, But then definitely at the end of your workday, making sure that you decompress. So for me, I love to go swimming, listen to music, cooking, anything that I can use as an outlet to decompress from listening to all of those vulnerable stories. And the last thing that I would say is every therapist needs a therapist. And being able to 
touch base with someone else and saying, you know, hey, you know, this is what I experienced today. And just being able to brainstorm and, and let things out and being able to talk to another person, um, clinician that knows and understands what you are going through. Mm-hmm. That's really good. Yeah, as you, were, as you were talking, I was thinking about my own experiences and traumas. And a lot of them, you know, came up when I was first starting out when I was new to the field. And I had a really great clinical supervisor. But, you know, kind of the red flags that I had were, if, if a patient or a client was talking to me, and they were telling me, you know, their story or what happened or the situation. And then I had an emotional response, or I was triggered to think of like a person in my life or a situation in my life where it, it happened. And maybe I had an extra big reaction or a different reaction than I'm than maybe I should have had. Um, anything that was like a little off, I would bring that to my clinical supervisor and we would help process it. And chances are there was something deeper that I didn't even realize was still was affecting me, you know, years, maybe decades later, and affecting how I show up for my clients and how I respond and the efficiency in which I'm able to help them. Um, Because if I'm focused on my own stuff and how I should have, you know, quote, should have respond or could have done this differently, then I might be influencing them into something that maybe isn't helpful for them or even harmful for them. Yeah. And in, in the therapy realm, you know, we call that, transference. And I'm really glad that you brought that up, supervision. And that is a very important piece of being a clinician. And I know that I talked about, you know, new social workers or new clinicians that are coming in, starting off brand new with providing therapy, but also being a seasoned clinician too, you know, you can experience, like you just said, having um, some of those emotional responses and you didn't plan on, you know, saying or doing or reacting in that way. It just naturally happened based off the content that was presented and talked about in therapy. So I'm glad that you took that in to your supervisor and talked to your supervisor about it. So yeah, again, as seasoned clinicians, we can do that as well. And don't be afraid or ashamed of it mm-hmm. because as we go and as we learn, you know, you can always, again, have that person to bounce ideas off of that makes you a stronger clinician because then you can tap into, oh, you know what, let me, you know, do my self-check in my own personal inventory and dive a little bit deeper to see, you know, what caused that? You know, is it an unresolved issue? Is it an issue that I didn't even know that was an issue until I heard it? Yes, yes. Because even sometimes uh, when I say things out loud and say, this happened and blah, 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 I don't know what to do. But now that I'm processing it out loud, it sounds like I need to do X, Y, and Z. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) 
or um, I remember there would be multiple times where I'd say, hey, you know, coworker, can I talk to you about something? I think this might be reportable because this and this and this is going on. And now that I say it out loud, I should definitely report it. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, it happens, you know, um, all the time. So definitely. Yeah. So, you know, we mentioned um, clinical supervision and vicarious trauma. If if there is someone who is concerned about maybe they they are experiencing vicarious trauma or maybe they want to prevent it or process these things, you know, what are what are ways that we can bring it up in clinical supervision? And, you know, how would you respond to that? Is it processing? Is it activities? Is it all of the above? Can you share a little bit about your style? Well, yeah, definitely. I think that it is all of the above through activity and through processing. And one of the things that I encourage my supervisees to do is to stick with that self-inventory so literally everyone that I see we have a self-inventory and it is divided up into a few categories emotional behavioral psychological cognitive and spiritual because when you're dealing with a person you know you're dealing with the whole person and so if you're supervising or when I supervise, I want to make sure that I'm dealing with the whole person and I'm addressing everything that I can possibly address. So that's one thing that I do. The other thing is when I'm working with them, being transparent, being open and just being able to have that effective communication is the second component of, you know, me encouraging so if a supervisee comes to me or they, a supervisee may be listening to this podcast and they may say, well, you know, I'm a little nervous. You know, what if they judge me? What if they think that, you know, I don't have good clinical skills? Then I will say, please don't think that way because you brought it up and said, you know, hey, I'm not sure about this, but I want to run something by you. You know, this is a thought that came up or this, uh, this is a, a emotion that came up in a session today and you know it really hit home or it brought up some emotions that I wasn't ex- um, expecting or some thoughts that I wasn't expecting and, and it stuck with me um, I want to you know talk about that so be open about it and I think that your supervisor will look at that as progress and um, acknowledge that as you know, self-awareness, not, you know, judge you of saying that, hey, you know, you're not a a good clinician in any way. That makes you actually a great clinician when you Mm -hmm. can, you know, acknowledge those things. And the last thing that I wanted to touch on also that I do with my supervisees is I encourage all of them to create a um, self-care plan and a decompression plan mm. do it together you know and sometimes they get really creative and they do it at home and we talk about it 
And each day, you know, because I meet with different um, um, supervisees throughout the week. And each time I meet with a supervisee, that's basically where we start. And I say, let's do a mental health check-in about you first. And then we're going to dive into the clients. I love that. I love that because it really puts the clinician at the forefront of, of clinical supervision, which is, is what we need because if we're struggling and all we talk about is our clients' issues but never get to our issues, then it's never going to get better. It's just we're, we're just stuffing it down. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. Um, someone, you know, someone on Instagram, they also had a question about if, if there's someone who experienced trauma, what are some of the ways or therapy modalities that's most effective or evidence-based in treating trauma? Oh, wow. So since we are focusing on children, the evidence-based practice that works the best or that has been proven to work the best is trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's um, for um, children and adolescents. Okay. And what would be some of the red flags that, that social workers or, um, or parents or teachers would look out for in children or teens so that they can recognize, oh, you know, these are the red flags. Maybe you should go speak to someone, you know, speak to a therapist who can really help you. Okay. So I will say a shift in behavior, being more moody than usual, um, irritable, um, and kids, it might, and depending on the age, it might be, you know, crying spells, um, isolation. The child had a favorite toy or a, a favorite activity and they absolutely stop engaging in that favorite toy or, toy or in that favorite activity. The other thing that you can be um, mindful of is hygiene especially if we're talking about um, our preteens, you know, how is the hygiene? Um, and that is, you know, very prevalent. Um, hygiene is very prevalent among children or adolescents who have been um, sexually assaulted or sexually molested. Mm. And um, so, yes, that's, that's very important as well as sometimes it can also in our young um, adults, or I'm sorry, in our children, it might look like aggression. So it might that depression piece or depre the depression piece, sorry, may look like aggression or being aggressive. So those are just some, um, some symptoms or some, you know, signs or warning signs that you can um, look at. Okay. Do you recommend people who aren't trained in trauma to like approach this conversation? And then, you know, what would, what would we even say to, to start it? I will say, bring it up to someone, you know, if we're in a school environment per se, mm -hmm. and there's these um, signs with a child, or even if you're in a community, 
you know, you can bring it up to the teacher. You know, you can talk to a, a, a professional and say, hey, what advice would you give? And I know one, um, this actually happened um, in a, a neighborhood where a person who had no experience did witness this and did see this from a tr uh, training that she took. And what she did was she didn't want to offend the family. Mm -hmm. So she actually called the school and had the school do a um, trauma awareness for the parents. And they actually did. And thank God that one parent did join. And she actually was able to get her child the help that they they needed. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. That's such a great example. Thank you for sharing that. Um, is there anything that we haven't covered about? I mean, there's I know there's a lot to trauma, but anything that you want to mention um, about trauma or your work as a therapist or as a clinical supervisor? I... I would have to say that trauma can be very complex. And again, there are different levels of trauma. And I know that I didn't touch on all of the components of trauma. Mm -hmm. But if you are a supervisee, um, don't be, like I said before, don't be afraid to open up and have um, those effective talks with your supervisor if you have any concerns or any doubts and being able to provide adequate services for someone who is struggling with, with trauma. And as a person who themselves may experience trauma, don't be afraid to reach out, you know, to someone ask questions and, you know, get help if you need help. And for all of the clinicians out there who are providing the service, make sure that you are taking care of yourself. Definitely, definitely. And how do you take care of yourself? You mentioned, you know, cooking and, um, and a couple other things. What, what do you like to do for self-care? Yeah. So, in addition to swimming, cooking, music, I actually love to, I love to color. I love to dance. And even though I cannot sing, <laughs> I love to <laughs> sing. I, I, I am all off those notes and there are, there, it's horrible, but I, I love to do that. And <laughs> it makes me happy. So, I mean, hey, do what makes you happy. Awesome. So we will catch you at the next karaoke bar. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, definitely. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed our conversation today. And where can people find you and connect with you? Okay, so if you want to learn more about me, please reach out. I am at Elevated Voices Podcast across all social media platforms. And I look forward to hearing from you. If you have direct questions, you can send me a direct email at elevatedvoicesnumber1 at gmail.com. Love it. And all the links are there in the show notes. Definitely 
check out her podcast, subscribe it, give it five stars, all of the things. (laughs) Thank you so much, Daishika. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Social Workers Rise. If you loved it, please open up your iTunes, tap the five stars, and leave a short note on why you love listening to the Social Workers Rise podcast. Also, if you want to share it on social media, I absolutely love it. You have me fangirling all over you. Take a screenshot and share it and tag me at Social Workers Rise on Instagram and Facebook. Lastly, just want to leave a little bit of legal disclosure here that the information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Social Workers Rise podcast are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done so at your own risk. This podcast should not be used in place of professional advice, therapy, or clinical supervision. And with that, my friends, I'll talk to you next week.